C-A-M-P-A-D-U-L-T-H-O-O-D Camp Adulthood Bridging the Millennial Divide One conversation at a time Interviewing guests Strangers and friends We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood Hi, campers. Welcome to Camp Adulthood. I am Camp Adulthood, Shay Keats. And I'm the resident youth, Maddie Yergi. Um, I feel like it's been a while since we do- we've done this, even though I think it was like 10 days ago. I just miss Maddie so much when I don't see her. So, Well, the last time we were on the Skype together was when we were interviewing Young Jackson. But we oh, haven't done yes. one, just the two of us, probably like a month, a little over a month. Yeah. So it has been a while. That's a long time. Friendship yeah. podcast for life. I know. Hashtag. So, it's very yeah. exciting. Well, shall we kick it off with our millennial moments? Do you yeah. want to start, Shay? Sure. Um, and I feel badly because my well, I don't feel badly about anything, but my millennial moment like very quickly devolves into a hot topic. So I'm oh, sorry. Oh, do you want to go have... second then? I'll do my millennial well, moment, or you want to just go for it? Yeah, do yours. If yours is just like a light yeah, moment, it's it's okay. a light, you know, little little. T- tidbit little story about my life from yesterday all right um so i thought this would be very appropriate as a millennial moment because i think it touches upon a lot of living in new york as a millennial moment and also it's just a funny story so yesterday i went to a vinyl night in brooklyn i'm sorry what vinyl wine and vinyl where you sit and drink wine while listening to vinyl records which is very hip MG, you were like, sometimes Maddie is so cool that I just can't, I, I, I just feel like a real old fuddy-duddy. Yeah. That's well, very true. Cool. <laughs> so that was one thing. So we got there and it was hosted at one of my friend's places and he has like a huge vinyl collection. I have like a very small vinyl collection. I have like maybe Maddie's like very 10 cool. records. I yeah. have zero records. I have a very large CD collection. I probably have like five or 600 CDs. So that's my... Yeah thing that I like um but vinyl I only have a few so I brought a few records and other people bought them and then obviously my friend has a bunch and we were just sitting around having snacks and drinking and like visiting and stuff and he is also really into cinematography so he was like oh wouldn't it be cool if we put on a movie that's like visually very interesting while we're listening to the vinyl and we were like okay cool so he settled on The Shining which at first I thought (laughs) would be a poor choice but it's really only scary for the last like maybe 10 to 15 minutes the rest of it yeah especially if you're watching it without the dialogue and without any of the music did they put up subtitles yes yeah okay. so we could follow along um but like the whole setting in the hotel and stuff is very cool like the architecture and you know the imagery and stuff so like that was very nice um there were people smoking pot i did not partake because i'm mm. looking for a new job and i don't want to put myself in peril um but How other people were yeah so the ending of the story this is what i'm trying to get to is at one point have you have you seen the shining once upon a time uh, maybe i've seen bits and pieces of it and i've read the book so i'm familiar okay. with the story so you know what it's about okay yeah. well if our Love listeners have no idea what's going on they can google it i'm not going to go through the whole yeah. plot synopsis, spoiler but, alert yeah um but there's a scene right before shit kind of hits the fan where the guy goes crazy and starts going on his murderous rampage where Mm -hmm. he walks into this bathroom and there's a woman who's like completely nude 
and she's like a beautiful like young woman and she like gets out of the bathtub and the Jack Nicholson character like the main guy starts like making out with her and then he opens his eyes and realizes it's it's like this old decrepit woman with like sores all over her and he freaks out and like runs out of the room so right as that scene started we had put on a Jimi Hendrix live record where he did the Star Spangled (laughs) Banner and so we watched I'm telling you if anyone's looking for a good time put on start the record right when that scene starts and put on that scene of The Shining and it's like the Star Spangled Banner is perfect as this like very beautiful nude woman is like getting up slowly out of the bathtub and then right when the action starts when Jack Nicholson uh runs out of the room it starts purple haze which is like a more upbeat song so anyways that was very cool and i was like wow this is very hip cool uh weekend activity i had yeah i love that now i have a question so while i'm just trying to really envision this party full of full of cool hipsters now do you while the movie is playing and you're having your wine or you know other drug of choice um and the record is playing are you like lowly chit-chatting with one another or is you sitting there in silence no we were we were like chit-chatting we were you know it was like a normal sort of party atmosphere but you know at intermittent times people would like start paying attention to the movie and be like oh look this is what's going on then we would sit in silence and kind of watch the movie for a little bit Mm -hmm. um but for the most part it was like mingling and chit-chatting the movie thing was kind of just like going on in the background but yeah okay i love that interesting that That is an excellent millennial moment yeah, I thought it was pretty good, if I do say so myself. Yeah. So, uh, Shay, what is your millennial moment slash hot topic? Um, I know, guys. Sorry, I have, like, so many serious okay. facts and figures and articles. Um, so my side tangent millennial moment is I'm recording this right now from my WeWork space, and I know we've talked about co-living and co-working spaces previously. Um, so it's very exciting, but I'm sitting in a very small phone booth that was recently painted. So if I start to like sound a little um, out of it, uh, maybe Maddie should tell me to wrap it up and get some fresh air in here. Just FYI. But my actual Is the paint like wet? No, they painted it like three weeks ago, but it still smells. So yeah, that's just life. Um, So for my millennial moment today, I wanted to talk about tacos. um, Yes, I love it. (laughs) They're the best. Um, fish tacos are my favorite taco. Maddie, what is your favorite taco? I'm all, I think I'm a shrimp person, Ooh, but I also right. like, if I don't know, because sometimes you go to a taco place and you're like, I don't know if the seafood is going to be good or not. Good. I'll yeah, usually do a chicken taco. Hmm, chicken. It's. I think that's a good, good stable taco to have. Um, so I just love tacos. I love traditional tacos. I love fusion tacos. I love Tex-Mex tacos. I don't think I've ever met a taco that I really didn't like. Um, And, you know, Portland is really this like city of tacos. There are just tacos everywhere. Um, But uh, when I was kind of talking about this, um, oh, and my, uh, I guess I will call him on air, my boyfriend and I have- Camp Adulted moment. Hey, David. Hi, David. Shout out, David. so we've been going to all these different taco places and we kind of like have a mission of trying many tacos. At one point there was like a goal of finding the best fish taco, but I think we've kind of deviated just to finding all the delicious tacos. Um, so 
anyway, so as Maddie and I were talking about this, she was like, hey, did you hear about the Portland burrito cart that was closed or shut down uh, out of hate after the owners were accused <laughs> of cultural appropriation? And I was like, no, but I got to read about this because that's right up my alley. So again, and I feel like I'm kind of stealing this from Maddie. I hope this wasn't your hot topic. No, it wasn't. I honestly, um, I heard about it actually from my family when I was in Colorado. They were talking about it, and then I read the article, and I sent Shay a couple different articles about it so she could kind of get a couple different perspectives on it, but it just made me think when Shay was like, I like tacos, and I think that might be my millennial moment, I was like, oh, this is relevant because it's about tortillas, which obviously tacos go in a tortilla, and yeah. about Portland. So you're definitely not stealing it from me, and you have more perspective, seeing as I oh. have never been to Portland. So Yes, but I think anyone who enjoys, um, you know, I don't want to use the word ethnic, but let's say food of other cultures um, has been in this. Anything besides situation. American, like, anything cheeseburgers. besides cheeseburgers, if you like anything besides cheeseburgers. Um, so anyway, I love this article in the Latino Voices section of the Huff Post because the subtitle is, Critics Say the Women Bragged About Stealing Recipes While in Mexico. So you read through the article, and it basically talks about the stand. is called Kooks Burritos. Um, the two gals who started it are Elsie Connolly and Kaylee Wilgus, and they did an interview with the Willamette Week um, in May. This is kind of a an, um, from May of last year. Um, so they did, in my opinion, very poorly in this interview. And I think what happened was that this was a that these girls their issue was not that they went to Mexico and tried to find out these quote unquote trade secrets is what it was that they didn't know how to talk about what they did and maybe they did go down there and like bully little old tortilla makers into telling them their secrets but I have a feeling that that's not what happened I have a feeling they went down there and you know they tried to figure it out the best that they could and they came back and then they didn't know how to talk about about it so the way that they and they it sounds pretty bad you know the, the way that they talk about it it makes it sound like the women were reticent the um mexican women were reticent to give up the secrets and that they you know pushed maybe a little hard and there was a lot of like peeking in windows um but i think there's a way to talk about that that is could have you know could have prevented some of this backlash them because if you talk about like we went to Mexico because we were really interested in learning about the cultural history and authentic tortilla making process from the, you know, talented women who do it and blah, blah, blah. Um, so the issue is basically they had such backlash from their tortilla making that, as I mentioned, they were forced to uh, close their cart. Um, and, you know, there people say, different things and the the one problem is it's unclear whether the women you know whom they consulted in Mexico were compensated for their knowledge but I think is this necessarily something that you would compensate someone for their knowledge um and all of that so you know people say that this is stealing people say that it's not and then you know there was a woman who said okay you know yes the women did go to Mexico but you have to be careful when you're eating at Chipotle and Taco Bell. And additionally, yes, these women met Mexican tortilla makers on vacation, but the women also 
reverse engineered the tortilla recipe in their spare time. So I think that that's something to listen about, but I guess, or to listen to something that I just found really interesting and that I would just like to talk about and to talk to someone who is more knowledgeable than I am, um, is where does the, when you're talking about cuisine, um, and you're talking about cuisine of foreign lands, where does cultural appropriation begin? If you're stealing from a first world country and making Italian food, I feel like we don't ever have this um, conversation. Um, I think, I don't know. So I just think so when, and there, there are many different methods for making different ethnic cuisines that are, will die if more people do not learn how to make freaking tortillas by hand in 50 years, there may not be anybody that knows how to make tortillas in the traditional way. So is it important? Does it matter who is learning how to make it? Or do you have to be a certain person? Um, do you have to be sensitive in a certain way? And I don't really have the answers to this because I can, I can, I can definitely see both sides of the argument. Although as someone who likes to experiment with different cuisines, both eating them and cooking them, I'm kind of like, this is a lot to think about every time I, I want to try something, something new because I do want to be respectful. So I guess I don't really have an answer to any of that, to this dilemma, but I would like to know where that line is. And if there even is a hard line for when um, eating and cooking crosses the line from uh, celebration of another culture to appropriation. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I don't think I have any of the answers either. I certainly have opinions on it and you and I were texting a little bit about it. I think where the line is for me is if you're taking advantage of something or presenting it as something that it isn't. And that to me is, it's more of like a market symbol in a way, like an economic thing where if you're two white ladies and you're presenting your tortillas as authentically Mexican and to me that is kind of a gray area because you could be celebrating and saying yes we're not Mexican but we took the responsibility of going down to Mexico and learning from these people and you know bringing their recipes to Americans who otherwise might not have been exposed to it and that in and of itself is a positive I think that's one side of it another side of it could be that they're taking advantage of these women and you know having a product that to me signals to the consumer something that it really isn't it really isn't authentic right so that's where I have an issue with it I think Mm -hmm. um you know, something that we kind of touched upon is you you brought it up like it, it never goes the other way. People are never it's always when a white sort of privileged person, maybe someone that's articulate, inarticulate in an interview is taking advantage of a third world country. So to me, it's not even about the culture. It's about the economics of the situation, which I think mm-hmm. is not really touched upon. But the thing that bothers me most, and this is not a value judgment on these women, I think as you accurately pointed out, they did a lot of things wrong that they could have done better. I think they could have used a lot of media training, which I think a lot of small business owners think they don't need, and they probably do in this day and age. Um, But I think it just goes to these publications, and this is why I sent you two articles. I sent you the HuffPo one, which I think you referenced, and then I sent the same story um, that was written by Fox News, and there were, it was the same essential facts you could say um but the way it was presented was 
slightly different, which I thought was interesting. Um, but I think it goes to this kind of signaling in the media, depending on which publications or which people you're listening to or where you are on Twitter, on the internet, you know, what people rally around. Because the HuffPo article, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it was kind of like, just from reading the headline, you could tell where there was the a definite si- stance taken. Yeah, right. exactly. You could tell where the virtue signal was. It was not, you know, these women went to Mexico and their business got shut down. That wasn't the story. The story was these women are crappy because of what they did. And this is what happened. So Mm -hmm. I think when you're taking these kind of localized issues, like this was a small Portland operation that I heard about in Colorado over Christmas. Like now it's a national story and these women's names are everywhere and it just kind of gets blown up. And I think this, for lack of a better term, sort of crowd herded sort of, you know, lack of information. Like I've spent, you know, I read those two articles and I talked about it with my family. Like I haven't read about the quality of the tortillas. I don't, I didn't go to the shop. I don't know these women. And Mm -hmm. yet I have a somewhat negative opinion of them from reading the Huffington Post. And to Mm -hmm. me, I think that's a problem with how people get their news. And I think it's a problem of, you know, no one's going out and talking. I think the bigger problem is these large corporations. Like the last time I bought tortillas, it was from a large grocery store chain you know that's the ceo is a white dude in the midwest and those people are not going to mexico finding traditional recipes and then having mexicans make the tortillas in their factories you know it's mass-produced food and i feel like these women in portland are doing more of a service to the traditional nature of these goods than the large corporations and yet i have i've never seen an article about you know kroger producing Kroger brand ethnic food, you know, and that to me is more of a problem. So I think people pick and choose. They find these people who are a little vulnerable, who are inarticulate, who, you know, I think, especially in today's culture, it's a little bit easy to laugh at privileged people, especially privileged white women. I think there's a stereotype that they're stupid and a little vapid, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's unfortunate. So I think these women were a victim of kind of this internet sort of bully pulpit culture, but I think they also, you know, maybe by doing this interview tried to, they were a little too big for their britches in a way. So yeah, that's for my sure. Opinion. For sure. I agree. And you know, that just reminds me, I made a note for myself. I've been wanting to read that book. Um, you have been publicly shamed uh, because yeah, I, I think that's so interesting. Oh really? Chrissy Teigen yeah. just started reading. I saw on Twitter. Oh, God. I love so you Chrissy can have a book club so with much. her. Oh, God. It's so um, good. I highly recommend that book. It's really yeah. shaped my worldview on a lot of things about oh, free awesome. speech and the internet, and it's fantastic. Well, I'm going to ask for it out of the um, library after I finish reading the book I'm reading on Catherine of Aragon, the first Wonderful. wife of King Henry VIII. Um, but anyway, so I just I, I love that, and I think that that's really interesting from a media standpoint. I think it is really interesting from a cultural standpoint as well. And I just, it's going to make me think, you know, again, as we're going out and trying all of these delicious tacos, and some of them are like super traditional off of the street cart, and some of them are like super shishi hipster nonsense with like duck fat confit and God knows what else on them, you know. And I, I think it's good that I'm going to be thinking about what that means when I'm not going to stop eating them and I'm going to be thinking about what that means and what these kind of culinary fusions and culinary 
I'll call it culinary appropriation, if not cultural appropriation, and what that means for me as a person in the world with money in my pocket that I want to spend. So um, that was my millennial moment slash hot topic. So okay, there we go. Well, do you have another hot topic, Shay, that you wanted to go into, or was that it? Well, that's really my only hot topic. But what we had talked about is, um, so last uh, week, uh, Maddie's family, as all of our avid listeners know, were on uh, the podcast. Uh, It was super wonderful. Uh, Maddie did a great panel discussion with them. Uh, But unfortunately, Shay was not there to join. Yes. Sadly, I was not there. It was over the holidays. It was a little crazy uh, coordinating. So um, I, given that I am more of a liberal than Maddie's family, um, I wanted to give a little bit of a rebuttal to the episode. Sure. I think that's very fair considering you weren't part of the original panel and it's your podcast, so you can say whatever. So first of all, I know I love that, right? This is my podcast and I can say whatever I want. It's great. Hashtag free Um, speech. Hashtag free speech. Oh, which is one of my topics I'm going to talk about. Um, So I'm going to try and go through this because I took a lot of notes for a 45 minute episode. Yeah, go through it and then um, we can discuss after. Yeah, I mean, feel free to jump in um, as you'd like to, because I really hopped to a lot of topics. And one, when we get to the end, I'm going to refer everyone to an article that my dad actually found in the HuffPost and I sent to Maddie. Um, But it's a really wonderful kind of explanation of these economic issues that are facing millennials and uh, why we are quote unquote screwed. So I'm going to be quoting from that as well. Um, so one thing I really loved about this panel discussion with Maddie's family is uh, when Maddie and I first started this, I mean, I think, you know, as you know, Maddie and Shay's best friend podcast happens because Maddie and I think, I think pretty similarly about a lot of things, although we're not the same person. Um, so, but one of our goals when we started Kim Adulthood was to bridge the millennial divide. And that's not only an age divide. I think it is a divide between all of these things that, you know, make our country and our world so polemic. And um, we wanted to talk about them in a way that was really open and safe. Um, So even though Maddie's family said a lot of things that I cringed a little bit at because it was super conservative and it certainly was not the way that I think you're allowed to sit in the uncomfortableness a little bit exactly and I kind of wanted everyone to know that a like that's okay I still think Maddie's family well at least her parents and Jackson because those are the ones I have met are some of the most amazing people and I, I just and I'm not saying it's to justify what I'm about to say but more to make a point that open dialogue among people who have different opinions is okay. And we want to encourage that. And everybody should be talking to their friends and family members who have different opinions and not just sweeping that under the rug. Sure, I agree. And I think before you jump off into it too, like my family, I think from listening to this podcast and some of the people that we've had on that maybe they disagree with, I think it's given them the opportunity as well to kind of sit in that uncomfortable sort of phase of either being offended or cringing or you know having a certain image in your mind of what something that you disagree with looks like out in the world and maybe that's a negative image when it could be a little bit more positive and I think you know I've had conversations with them and they've had to sit with that a little bit um 
as well. So I think it is a two way street. And that's really, that's been really great for me. Cause I think, you know, um, there's, there's certain things that, you know, they've changed my mind about and certain things that I've changed their mind about. So I think it is really yeah. positive. So campers like talk to people. That's what we want you to do. That's our big goal for this project. Um, so first of all, Maddie, I just want to say when your parents were like bantering at the beginning, I, know, they're so, I was they're disgusting. laughing. I thought it was so sweet. I just was like, my hashtag my dad goals. Is a, is a ham. Such a ham. And so is your mom. And I loved it. Um, so I, intros were great. Um, I also, it really struck me the way Emily introduced herself. And I love that she was yeah. like, I'm a mom. And she was really, she wasn't like, I'm a mom, but I'm a da da da. She just was like, I'm a mom and my kids are awesome. And this is what I do. And it's important. And she's a millennial. And I just thought that was really um, special. And I know we've talked to other um, stay at home moms before on the podcast, but I always want to like shout that out because that is um, a wonderful and legitimate choice for your life. Um, so some of these things, hold on, I'm just going to flag. Okay. Um, I want it later in a later, let's make a note in a later episode. I'm going to talk about this whole idea of leaders or icons of generations more in depth. It's something that we've talked yeah. about off and on. I think that's a bigger conversation. Yeah, that was anyway. my dad's contribution. That was his yeah. question that he put in the bucket. And I thought it was very interesting. So, yeah. Um, so then we talk about someone mentioned Greek life. I'm assuming that was Jackson. Um, we've talked about this a lot. I don't really want to go into it again. Yeah, we talked a lot I, about it. We recorded that episode yeah. right before we recorded the one that we released kind of out of order with Jackson. So we go into that more with Jackson's solo episode. So exactly. But I guess the question that it raised for me hearing your parents talk about it that I hadn't really thought about before um, is I, I wonder how you would feel if it was your kid. I, I guess I just haven't really looked at it that way. Like, even though I'm a huge supporter of these systems, if my kid was the one who got his face smashed in or, had alcohol poisoning would it would it change how I feel so I don't know I I mean I think my parents my dad was the one that brought up that you know they the Greek organizations especially the male centric ones are going to have to change themselves and I I I totally agree with that as well and um you know I think my mom kind of rebutted and was like you know why are we not highlighting the positive things which I totally agree with and look I think what the interesting thing to look at with the question that you post too is there was a class that I took in college, not to get on a tangent, but just, you know, my my brain thinks about this. We were talking about um, gun control and it was in a class about culture wars. It was a history class. And he had a member of the NRA, like a NRA spokesperson, and then a gun control advocate come in and kind of debate each other and have a lively discussion. It was very interesting to me the first question that the professor asked was how did you get into your line of work? What made you passionate about, you know, being a representative for the NRA and then also being a gun control advocate. And both people had identical stories. They were different ages, completely different parts of the country, but they both had someone close to them that died because of gun violence. And oh the person God, that, that worked for not the that NRA. Someone died at the right. conversation. It was yeah. so interesting. And it's stuck with me all these years of like, when something tragic happens to you, I don't think, there's one way that people kind of process it. And I think everyone and every family kind of goes with it differently. Like both of these people had, you know, one of them, it was a brother and one of them, it was a girlfriend and they were shot by someone. And the guy that was in the NRA, he was like, you know, maybe if my brother had, 
you know, more ability to defend himself. He was a shop owner. Maybe if he also had a gun or he wasn't afraid of guns and stuff, it would have helped him. And then the gun control advocate was like, you know, my girlfriend got shot and she died based on someone with a gun. No one should have them kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just thought that was super interesting. And I think that is my opinion to answer the question that you posed about Greek life. I think it's so hard to say unless you're in that situation. So my heart goes out to those people. Yeah. So hard. Um, So then we got into the first thing that I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, When Uncle Mark said that white men, I think it was Uncle Mark, are under assault. um, And then he followed that up by saying that they're the least popular group. And then, of course, something that it's going to come up a lot in my quote-unquote rebuttal is liberals are controlling the narrative so first of all i think there's a big difference between the language you know saying someone is under assault and saying that someone is not super popular right now yeah Um, i agree i think the language could have been better and i think not to cut you off because i obviously want to hear what you want to say but just providing more context obviously because i know him and i think he said some things that you know, if you were sitting with him and able to express these things, I think the way that I interpret, I agree with you. I don't think it's white men are under assault. And obviously, maybe he would disagree with that. I think it's, it's more so the unpopular thing. And, you know, I've had anecdotes in my life where I was sitting with a friend and we were like, we were driving somewhere and we were listening to podcasts, like she would put one on and then I would put one on. And I put Mm -hmm. one on and it was like, you know, it was two guys the the hosts were two guys and they were like talking back and forth like whatever and after five minutes my friend was like I don't really like podcasts where both of the hosts are like white dudes and I was Mm -hmm. like we've listened to it for five minutes like (laughs) how can you form an opinion and she was like I just don't like it I don't support it I think there's like so many other podcasts out there that are so much better and I was just thinking to myself like wow what a what a close-minded thing to say you know that's just one example and I think um the controlling of the narrative, I think, is just through popular culture in a way and mm-hmm. um, kind of those things where, you know, like Natalie Portman at the Golden Globes was like, all of these director nominees are white dudes. That's something that happened last week. So I think yeah. that's where it's coming from. I don't think it was as dramatic of like, you know, white men are, you know, so underappreciated. Woe is us. I think it was more so just when a white man does something poor it's kind of villainized in a way or you know if a white man is doing something that's the same as you know Mm -hmm. a woman or a person of color the person of color is going to get a little bit more attention which maybe that's the right thing to do I don't know but anyways just wanted to give that context before you can no I think I think there's certainly um merit to that and I think we are again we're living in a world and a, a, a world that is controlled by the me- by media, both consider- conservative and liberal. And it is so everything is every everything has to be vill- villainized and um, everything has to be juxtaposed and everything has to be so um, you know, so polemic. Um, so that I think that is a problem. But I think when you have, I think this kind of conversation white men are quote unquote under assault or white men are unpopular even. And I agree with you. I think that conversation that you um, shared about you and your friend in the car is really interesting. And everybody should keep a minute to think about that because we do have to make decisions about what merits 
um, our time because we have a limited amount of time and we're completely inundated all the time by things to listen to and things to read and things to watch and um, things to pay attention to. So we do have to make choices, but I think thinking about how we make those choices based on merit um, is important, but I think it's, you know, how can we give merit to people who've always been at the top of the heap um, right. while also giving opportunity to people who have to work that much harder to get noticed, you know? Yeah. But I, I agree. Think I, the historical, like, people at the top of the heap, like, when I talk to, like, my brother about it and stuff, mm-hmm. he's like, you know, historically white men have been at the top, but I am 20 years old. I've never been at the top. You know what I mean? And I think that doesn't negate anything from you know, the struggle and the systematic oppressions that do exist. I just think, I think we have to acknowledge, and again, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit, but I do agree with it in this case that I, I do have empathy for the individual because, and I think it is a little exhausting for people when they're on the negative end of something to hear it. And I think especially people that are on the right side, like I asked a lot of leading questions of my family and a lot of times they didn't take the bait, which I was pretty proud of them. And they surprised me a lot of the times with what I thought they were going to say. And I kind of prejudged Mm -hmm. them in a way. Um, But I thought a lot of the substitute questions I asked about, you know, not to jump ahead or anything, but about like sexual assault and stuff, I thought there was going to be a lot more like you know, white men are under assault. This is a witch hunt. And during that conversation, it was very much like, no, you know, it's, it's older boomer white men who are assaulting younger millennial women and that's wrong. And yeah, I thought that was everyone kind of agreed with that. So I don't know. I just think that there should be some acknowledgement of, you know, people are trying their best and it is a little exhausting, especially in popular culture or, Mm -hmm in the media when it's always like we're giving someone else an opportunity, even though you've been on this earth for, you know, 20 some odd years and you're yeah. trying your best. Like that's a little disheartening, I think for a lot of people that they personally might not have done anything wrong. Yeah, no, I agree. And I don't, and I think the thing is that it's not necessarily an issue about being wrong or not wrong um, or having done something wrong. I think it's just, it's uncomfortable because now white men are having are getting a little taste of what it feels like to be a woman or a person of color or the person who is villainized you know or thought less of or thought sure and i agree i think there's a way to do that where it's like we're bringing you over to our side and we're trying to give you empathy versus being like i'm not gonna patronize that business because a white man owns it or i'm not going to give this person the time of day because of who they are, not what they say. That's where it gets kind of to me or the virtue signaling, like we were talking about with the taco Mm -hmm. ladies. It's like, you know, I think we like to not talk about the real issues. We don't like to talk about the racism and we like to just say that person's a racist. Their point of view is invalid because they're a white man. Like white men are never going to understand the struggle. They're never Mm going to understand. So therefore we just need to label people as racist and homophobes and take the microphone away from them. And I think that, genuinely hurts a lot of people and it's like on the inside Mm -hmm. we're all people like the way that we present to the outside and the labels and stuff when you're having a conversation with someone like my mom's hurt when she talked about like when she talks about things that happen in her community and she's called a racist or a homophobe like 
yeah she's a real person out in the world and like she feels that way i think those are valid feelings but yet in the media and stuff the hurt of white people and especially white men is not taken into account sometimes yeah no i agree i think that that's that's valid um so there was some conversation about um uh, free speech and i just think in general it's i'm very good to just Yeah, no, but I think it's just a good idea to remind ourselves in general about what free speech is and what that means and the history of it. And the, the reason it, we are allowed free speech is because people used to get jailed for speaking against the government. So basically, free speech allows you to say mean things, but not nasty, not libel, not, not slander, defamatory. Yeah. not defamatory against the government. And um, it was really interesting. I went to, uh, so again, the, you know, dictionary definition is the right of people to express their opinions publicly without governmental interference, such as, um, subject to the laws against libel, incitement to violence or rebellion, etc. Um, and then there's a great really piece on a uh, uscourts.gov, um, which I'll share with all of y'all. Um, that just kind of has a quick list of like freedom of speech includes the right not to speak interestingly specifically the right not to salute the flag if we want to go back to all that football nonsense um to use certain offensive words and phrases uh of students to uh be allowed to protest a war you can see a lot of this came out of um that was in 1969 so that's uh you know vietnam times um you know to contribute money to political campaigns so it's both uh, actions and speech um, and, you know, it even includes, uh, you can engage in symbolic speech, which means that it's okay to burn the flag in protest. And then it says what it does not include, which is to incite actions that would harm others. Like it is illegal to shout fire in a crowded theater. Um, you can't distribute obscene materials. You can't burn draft cards. I thought that was interesting. Um, this one is interesting. You get, as of 1989, you can not permit students to print articles in a school newspaper over the objections of the school administration. I would overthrow that hmm, one. Interesting. Um, and students cannot make an obscene speech um, and students cannot advocate illegal drug use at a school sponsored event. So anyway, I would love to like read about this more in depth, but I think it's just always good to have a reminder of what exactly that means. Um, I agree. I and think then, that's a good... Yeah. Um you know, refresher of, like, what protected speech is in the government. I think a lot of what we talked about, which maybe this is what you're going to get into, is more so not, you know, what is protected speech from the government, like, what's not going to get you jailed, but what's kind of um, a good idea or what should be celebrated in terms of academic free speech and, you know, students that are trying to expand their minds, so to say, um, what they should be allowed to say and what should be celebrated and kind of what the school administration should let people say. And I think um, I do kind of agree with a lot of what was said. And this was probably the part of the discussion that I agreed with pretty much everything that everyone said the most. Um, Just based on the fact that I, I think I kind of have like some unique political views which we can talk about I'm pretty open about it but I think 
I have some unique, like, conservative ideas that I didn't openly talk about with my friends in college. I There was stuff that I was knowledgeable about that I could have put in college papers that I didn't because I specifically knew or there were, you know, jokes that were made in class and um, things that I knew that the professor would think less of me and think that I was a small-minded person because I thought the things that I thought. Um so that's something that I've had personal experience with. And my mom touched upon it in the 80s. You know, she worked for the Reagan campaign and she's had issues even in her professional life. Like people, you know, kind of saying and, you know, taking it to the ne- next step kind of in workplace environments based mm-hmm. on the, knowing that she worked on the Reagan campaign and knowing that she's an open conservative person. Um, yeah. She's been retaliated against in the workplace and such. I don't want to get into it too much, but... Um, you know, these are real things that people face and it's, I don't think that being a conservative, you know, I, I believe that if you're a KKK person, you should be able to have, you know, come on college campus, even if two people come and see you speak, I think it's fine. And actually like the ACLU has a lot of case studies about this, that if you let people speak even people that you don't agree with and you don't have the counter protest and you don't try to shut it down it actually creates less attention drawn to the bad people that you're you don't want to come back you know and they've had a lot of uh people talking in the media recently about that that the charlottesville thing if they had just let it happen you know Mm -hmm. not to get too off topic um it could have been a protest with 20 people that looked really silly and stupid and no one would have thought anything of it but because it became this big thing and people got riled up and it became violent and all of this stuff happened, it's now a thing that we all have to talk about and react to. So I'm a big advocate of free speech, not just protected free speech by the government, but amongst friends, amongst colleagues, and not shouting people down because you disagree with them. Exactly. And I think that's why we're having this conversation, our quote unquote, like, rebuttal, because, um, and like, a part of me, I have to say, like, I hate that I have to feel like I have to be like, I'm Taking the liberal stance. No, I mean, I did that with my parents. Everyone's, you know, unique. And I think even my parents, like a lot of what they said and what my family said was very conservative. Like they have views that would be considered liberal as well. You know, it's one snippet. Well, exactly. Exactly. So, but I guess the thing that bugs me because I've heard this before and I, and I just, I don't believe it's true, but I've also never, you know, identified as a conservative. I just, I hate this language and it's not the first time i've heard it about the liberal the evil liberty liberal faculty at our lib, at our quote unquote liberal arts schools and our universities um as someone who has three degrees and has been at three very very different institutions um and particularly when i was doing my business degree it was a very conservative program um i just i never felt like anybody I mean I saw it at NYU definitely with the undergraduates I mentored one of whom would be Maddie um where kids did feel like you know there was a lot of if you came and said something conservative you would be slammed down by people who felt otherwise but I don't think that's as prevalent as people make out to be and I feel like the conservative the right does the same thing as the left and um by saying that there's like this evil agenda by the quote-unquote liberal people in higher education is just not a healthy way to speak about it now granted yeah I didn't get into this as much studying you know 
the modernist period in English literature, but I certainly, you know, I went to a school that really valued a very wide education. So I took classes across my undergraduate degree, had a very large core curriculum. So I learned about a lot of stuff on all sides of the spectrum. And I just, I've never felt like there was a liberal agenda being pushed. Um, yeah. I, so I agree with what you said. I think yeah. my response to it is, um, I think it it's a pretty easy to tell, and there are studies about this that back this up, that most college professors are liberal, which that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think the, pro- mm-hmm. the profession lends itself to that, which is fine. Yeah. Um, I don't think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think anyone in the episode used the word evil. Not so evil, to speak, it, it might be that was bullying. My... I know the word well, bullying was used. Um, yeah. And I I do agree that it happens on both sides. I just think in academia specifically, um, it does tend to happen just because more faculty and administrators are liberal that in terms of academic pursuits and social pursuits on campus that the liberal point of view is celebrated more so than the conservative point of view. I think that's true. And, you know, I think it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around and have empathy for it unless... It's yeah, happened guess, to you or unless it's happened to someone in a real way yeah. where you've had to self-censor or, you know, we're in peril of losing a job because of not even something you said, but just saying like, yeah, I used to work for a president who won 49 out of 50 states back in the day. And that gets you yeah. in trouble at work like that to me is a little bit crazy. And, yeah. you know, it might not be happening as much as people are saying it is. And it might not be worthy of this hysterical like like you were saying, liberal agenda. I don't think there's an agenda. I just think that going back to the original point we were making of this discussion is people are not comfortable enough sitting in their own. They're not willing to reflect on why is hearing what this person having to say make me feel so uncomfortable? And what does this make my belief more firm? Or do I feel uncomfortable because... I feel like this person's putting a value judgment on me. Like people don't do the self-reflection. And so instead they say, mm-hmm. we're just not going to deal with it. We're not going to have these people here. We're going to tell this yeah. person that this is not allowed because I have such a vehement view on it. Like I do think that's legitimate. And I think we've yeah. seen it time and time again. Like I, I think, you know, just me saying that I have conservative beliefs. I think there's a lot of people listening to this that I was friends with in college who would have no yeah. idea that I even hold one if not multiple conservative beliefs you know and that's oh my god Matt, did maddie just come out as a conservative no i mean i don't even no <laughs> i wish i just had taken a video of you rolling your eyes at I'm, me. <laughs> I'm not a trump supporter i uh i just i believe in like very very small government and that's well, yeah i guess no, in today's think... day and age like a conservative idea yeah. um but there's a lot of liberal stuff that i also believe but you know yeah. for me to write in a paper that I believe in small government that leads people if I were in college today a lot of people would draw the line between that and like supporting Trump and being a racist which I don't think is right and I think it does inhibit academic freedom in some sense and it is a limit on free speech that I don't think should be there yeah well I mean I think it's really interesting because this is just and I don't know if this is because you went to NYU in 20 um whenever you started 2012, 2012. Um, because for me, and I mean, that's what was interesting for me hearing about your mom's experience because for someone who 
started university in 2002 at a small college in Cleveland, Catholic college, it was inherently more conservative. And I remember that the, there was no issue with the college Republicans meeting. They were a very strong student group. Um, and people tended in general to have significantly more conservative beliefs. And I never felt like there was an issue with the people who had conservative beliefs or the people that had liberal beliefs. And maybe my experience was um, unusual, but I, I don't know. I don't think it was, think I think it was it's, you know, I think it's, it's all so individual. And I think obviously we're all yeah. a product of our own experiences. And I think, yeah. I think there are a ton of campuses and experiences like you're having. I do think that now in 2016, the Republican name has been tarnished. 2018, sorry. Who am I? Where am I? Um, the Republican name has kind of been uh, turned into something different that I don't necessarily agree with all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And certainly at, you know, more liberal campuses like NYU, it was just not even just not even existent. It was like very one-sided. Yeah. So I think, I think it is very different. And my mom went to Michigan, which was very liberal back then and it's liberal now. Yeah. So I think that, you know, cashier experience as well, but even, you know, experiences in the workplace that I've heard of with her and stuff, it's like, it blows my mind sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's fascinating. And I think for me, I still do think there is this demonizing of this imaginary liberal agenda, but you have, Made me think a little differently about that. So thank you, Maddie. Um, going on, uh, basically, I wanted to talk about a couple things from the end of the article, and I wanted to uh, pair this with a really wonderful article, um, again, in the HuffPost and their Highline, uh, I guess, special features that they do. And it was by... Um, a gentleman named Michael Hobbs and uh, he called the piece uh, is called millennials are screwed. Um, FML why millennials are facing the scariest <laughs> financial future. It was pretty funny of any generation since the great depression. And I just really wanted to recommend this article to uh, pretty much anyone who I, I just really opened my eyes to a lot of things. It's very fact based. It's quite based in um, numbers Um from a variety of sources. So I just think it really explains um, a lot of these dividing issues that Maddie and I talk about. Um, we get stressed out um, by feeling like we're not doing enough or we're not good enough, but we don't realize that there are these greater um, economic forces at play and what that means. And there were a couple things that I just really wanted to make sure, and this is, you know, again, somewhat in relation with what, you know, first of all, I love what your mom talked about that millennials have never seen a vibrant economy. I think that was so interesting. Yeah, and no one, I think my dad said that. said that before. Oh, really? I wrote Mrs. J. Oh, maybe she echoed it. I think they both think said she, it. But. Okay. Anyway, I did skip around a little bit. Um, so yeah. And then your dad was talking about how like there are certain, there are certain facts that look really good. You know, inflation is down, unemployment is down, et cetera. Um, but the thing is that those metrics mean something different in the bigger economic scale. Um, right. So, again, 
there were a couple things and it starts. Um, and again, I would love to like just read this entire article out loud, but I'm not going to. Um, so I think, Oh, sorry. Go on. No, I, I agree. I think the millennial, I tried to say this with my family and I think it went over pretty well, but I think that there's a theme amongst older people that, you know, you can't help what time you're born, which obviously that is true. And that, you know, um, there's obviously a lot of individual factors, work ethic, where you're born, who your parents are, et cetera, et cetera. I think I tried to explain it to them and I have, this is another thing that I'm also very passionate about that I have so many friends that grew up in a wealthy upper middle class, predominantly white suburb. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, by all intents and purposes, very privileged. They had a lot of opportunities afforded to them. And yet they are still struggling so hard. And that if they're at the top of the privileged class, then everyone below them is already bad. And I, I kind of got the response of, you know, A, it's unfortunate, which I think that's really the only real response you could say, because we're obviously not going to solve the world's problems overnight. So just acknowledging Mm -hmm. that it's a problem, I think is good. And a lot of people did that. But the feeling that the hard, I think my uncle was the one that said this, that we're not hustling, that is, yeah, that they're not hungry enough. I think it's, it's false in terms of across the board. I think it's true for some people. And I could give some examples from um, my own life. And I think there's certainly you know, some people that are very close to me as well that um, see things differently from how I see them. And I, I identified mm-hmm. strongly with what Emily said, where she was like, you know, I could have moved home with my parents and, um, you know, saved money and stuff, but I couldn't because of the pride. I feel that way. I'm not saying that my choice is the best one. And yeah. I don't look down on people that did choose to move home and save money or, you know, were with family for whatever reason. Um, but I identify with that, that I probably wouldn't be able to move home with my parents just because of the the pride for me personally. So I think yeah. there are some things well, that overarching, general, it doesn't apply, but individually, sometimes there is yeah. a kernel of truth of there. Of course, of course. Um, and that's why I really liked this article, because it talks about it, again, in this way that's very quantitative, um, which I really liked. And it, you know, it says, what is different about us as individuals compared to previous generations is minor. What is different about the world around us is profound. And I think that is really the sum. Um, And I I did want to make a comment, though, about that whole pride thing. I think that is a larger conversation. And this is not me just defending my own choices. But, like, we have to change that conversation. Um, And I think we're we're something that you and I work really hard to do. But it's, like, that everybody's choices are valid. And there are certain ideas about community that are... We need to rethink, I think, as a generation. Sure. That, I mean, yeah. I, I'm i obviously not you know, yeah. poo-pooing anyone else's way of life. But just for with my own self and my own family dynamic, I wouldn't do that just for me. I don't think it's a, a poor yeah. choice for anyone else. And everyone's family dynamic is different. Everyone's economic choice is different. I don't look down on people because of that. I just, for me, I identified with what Emily said. And I think mm-hmm. those individual factors do, you know... Um, affect macro things it affects what type of jobs millennials choose like um you know when emily was saying like are millennials more choosy i think overall no but for my thing like yeah i went to a nice school and i have a nice education i could have chose to have a job 
where I earned less money and had more time and things like that. And, um, but right out the gate, like Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to support myself and not, you know, have to live in a crappy apartment, but I could have not done that. So I think there were a lot of things that they said that opened my eyes to my own choices and kind of who I am. And it was interesting to see that from an outside sort of older perspective. Yeah. Um, I just think that, um, again, I, I, I'm not saying that any of that is incorrect. I'm just saying like, I think there was, and again, and we've talked about this, um, you know, it was really interesting. There was, they tell a couple different stories. The one is a example of a girl who does what many of our friends do, which is they work a full-time job and then they have numerous side hustles where they're either nannying or babysitting or bartending on the side. And that's yeah, just to sure. me the bare minimum. And then to say that they're not hungry enough or they're not hustling is it's hard to hear that, you know, I think so. And then they talk about a kid who did made, had a very smart choice in his college degree, bachelor's in economics, minor in business. He drives a, a bus now. He drives a bus because it was impossible in 2010 for him to find a job. Um, but the thing that really, really struck me because this was really coincided with my personal experience um, is uh, this is a, from William Spriggs, who is an economics professor at Howard University. Um, He did also work under President Obama. Um, But he says, uh, there are millions of Scots in the modern economy. A lot of workers were just 18 at the wrong time, blah, blah, blah. Employers didn't say, oops, we missed a generation. In 2008, we weren't hiring graduates. Let's hire all the people we passed over. Uh, No, they hired the class of 2012. So, it's just something to think about this whole like good economy means it's good for everybody. Um, and this is according to a 2010 study, every 1% uptick in the unemployment rate, the year you graduate college means a six to 8% drop in your starting salary. Oh yeah. A disadvantage that has a good infographic about yeah. this. Um, the same study found that workers who graduated during the 1981 recession. So this is not a new thing. We're still making less than their counterparts who graduated 10 years yeah. later. It's every, unfortunate. Every recession creates these cohorts that never recover. So I just wanted to be cognizant of that and to say that. um, And then, of course, it goes in to talk about, um, you know, we have to pay attention to the millennials who didn't go to college because that's they're actually the largest Mm -hmm. part of the demographic. And um, there's a lot to think about there. Yeah. So, no, I I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think... um, you know, I think there was some acknowledgement of that in the episode, too, mm-hmm. when... Yeah, I agree. You know, when my dad was like, it's unfortunate when you were born, and it, it, it does suck, and there's no way to yeah. turn back time, and... um, But, you know, you can't go backwards, you have to go forwards, and mm-hmm. it it is really unfortunate. And I think it was heartening to see that there are older people that acknowledge that before yeah. um, we even brought it up, so I thought... Yeah that was good um yeah and I think yeah now I'm less um quote-unquote rebutting the episode and more just uh highlighting this article because I thought it was so interesting to so many things we've talked about since we started doing this um there's a large discussion in this article about how all jobs not just you know secretaries and temp people everyone is being hired as temporary help and it's um really disastrous to mm-hmm. millennials yeah. earning potential um so i think that's 
really interesting. Um, but I did want to, this is, this is a little bit of a rebuttal that, um, when it talks about, oh, millennials don't want to be an electrician or a contractor or whatever, um, it says in this article, trade groups have responded to the dwindling number of secure jobs by digging a moat around the few that are left. Over the last 30 years, they successfully lobbied state governments to require occupational licenses for dozens of jobs that never used to need them. It makes sense. The harder it is to become a plumber, the fewer plumbers there will be and the more of each of each of them can charge. And nearly a third of American workers now need some kind of state license to do their jobs compared to 5% in 19 in most other developed countries, you don't need official permission to cut hair or pour drinks. Here, these jobs can require up to $20,000 in schooling and 2,100 hours of instruction and unpaid practice. So I thought that was really interesting because I had recently... Yeah, that is super interesting. Yeah, there is a, a, a family member of mine um, who, well, it's a, you know, my cousin's husband's son uh he was very successful as like a contractor but he was like definitely bottom of the totem pole but he was making like 40 bucks an hour which is great and he was like okay i want to go back to school and better myself and become an electrician and then i can make a hundred thousand dollars a year and have this really great career but in order for him to do that he had to totally give up his well-paying job um move back in with his parents and is not going to be able to make money for several years. And that's not okay, you know? Um, yeah, and there's it's a no choice. way around that. There's you know? always choices. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, um, you know, some of the simplistic comments yeah. that were made, there's always more to the story. I do think, yeah. and I have some experience with this with my friends, like, I have a friend who, he's like a family friend at this point. Like, I went to high school with him, but my parents like know him pretty well and he went to school for welding and he was in a college program but you can do welding as a trade like through trade school and stuff you don't necessarily need a college degree to do it and he was like making no money in college and my dad works at a manufacturing company and he was like oh Mm -hmm. you know if so-and-so is graduating you know I really like him I think he's a smart kid you know let me know if he's looking like there are entry-level jobs at my company that make ninety thousand dollars a year and I was like wow that's great that's like you know more than what I'm making Mm -hmm. in finance like cool and I told him and he was like oh yeah I'll look into it and then you know didn't really hear anything like fine whatever and then I was talking to another one of our mutual friends and I was like oh what happened to so-and-so like what did he do after graduation and he was basically like and he's kind of like a hippy dippy kind of person so you know not really everyone but oh yes um yeah he was like, I'm not going to work for the man. And he's like working at an art shop doing like welding art, but he makes like $9 an hour. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a choice. It's a perfectly legitimate choice. And Mm -hmm. there's lifestyle benefits that go along with that. And, you know, artistic benefit and whatever. Um, But he's, he's really struggling and talking about earnings potential. Like, I think, um, you know, some of those choices while legitimate are a little illogical to the older generations. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to me as well I think there's a happy medium between I think there some millennials kind of bury their head in the sand and think I can think about these things five years from now and yet you can never look back and the earning potential that you're gonna lose out on um you know when being a starving artist kind of wears thin we're not talking necessarily about people who want to be a starving artist we're talking about people who who want to be an electrician or an HVAC repairman or, 
you know. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, that was one like, anecdotal story. Yeah. I'm just saying, I think, um, you know, people, people are making different choices. And I think that's what's exciting about this generation and mm-hmm. what we like to talk about in this podcast. Yeah. But I think um, I, I see it in my friends more so as I get older, where I'm like, it, the, there is a little bit of this sort of short-termism and I see it in myself as well where it's like you know I made a choice to have a high-paying job right out of college whereas I could have mm-hmm. you know found some sort of happy medium but I was like no I want to make all this money right out of college like that's short-termism in my own self right but yeah. I see it with my friends where it's like you know I can do this for another year and it'll be okay but it's like you know when yeah. when does the music stop kind of thing and I think well- I think this is something that you and I were talking about in general is that there is a, because I get this all the time whenever I talk about like, well, I'm trying to envision what my life is going to look like at 40. People are like, well, honey, you don't need to do that because you're still young. And I'm like, that is incorrect. Yeah, I totally agree. You have to do that now. And I think I've made any choices that I've made in my life that may have seemed, you know, not traditional I'm okay with them because I was pretty much always looking at that bigger picture, you know, but there are people who just will continue to do whatever and not think about what they want their life to look like at certain places. And I think Maddie, again, like you make the choice to do this because you can save money now and you can have a different kind of life later on. And you're thinking about the future. And I think that's super, um, important. And I've done the same thing. And I think what we have to do is encourage more young people to think about those questions. They should all listen to this podcast. <laughs> listen to this podcast campers and tell your camping friends. Yeah. Um, so yes, uh, we can we can change this to the Maddie and Shay give life advice podcast. That I would mean, also don't be we do that all the time? <laughs> I know, please write to us with your problems. Oh my God, um, but anyway, we totally do an advice column. This can be Uh, the beginning of our life coaching business. Oh, my God. Our life coaching. Okay, Maddie, this is what we can do. This can be our side project for our Patreon. (gasps) I think we need to add a new new, uh, situation, a new side project. We can think about this during our business meeting. (laughs) Yeah. So, Um, anyways, to wrap up, Shay, what else do you want to say? Yeah. I'm just trying. There's so many good things in here. And I just. Well, we have many more episodes in the future. read this article because I loved it so much but I think there's one other thing that I had um they talk about the fight the housing crisis which is really interesting um and how that affects everyone on a larger scale so check that out um she offers some solutions or he sorry Michael um offers some interesting solutions uh not going to get into the tax bill stuff because that's just crazy. Still TBD. Um, that's TBD. Too early to tell. Uh, it talks about who's voting, which I think is awesome. Um, and it does talk about, I liked uh, we have that boomers, when they vote, are going to have to think about how they want, what they want and who it affects long term and they sh- he asks Mr. Hobbs asks boomers it's up to you do you want your children to have decent jobs and places to live in a non-Dekanesian one of my favorite words old, old age or do you want lower taxes and more parking so I thought that was interesting I think a lot of people but, think that they're synonymous which is also interesting I agree and I think 
piece ends it in a really powerful way. So I'm just going to read that and then I will see. I don't think I had anything else. Um, yes. So he says, then there's our responsibility. We're used to feeling helpless because for most of our lives, we've been subject to huge forces beyond our control, but pretty soon we'll actually be in charge. And the question as we age into power is whether our children will one day write the same article about us. We can let our economic infrastructure keep disintegrating and wait to see if the rising seas get us before our social contract dies, or we can build an equitable future that reflects our values and our demographics and all the chances we wish we'd had. Maybe that sounds naive and maybe it is, but I think we're entitled to it. And I just love this because this is when millennials do, I, I, I don't ever want to say that millennials are entitled. And again, I think we're working hard with this podcast to change that stereotype and to change that particular dialogue. But guess what, kiddos, it's our turn. So let's not fuck it up. And I think that's kind of this really great call to action um i agree so, i think that's yeah. great it's excellent anyway so that's everything uh maddie thank you uh thank you to maddie's family for engaging us in such an exciting um and productive dialogue i loved listening to it um and i hope you guys still like me even though i'm i guess a raging liberal oh, so you. no you're not you're really not i thought I there's a lot of stuff they could have said that i think would have been more controversial I think you know a lot of what they said while it might have been simplistic in delivery was pretty pretty mild if not you know if you don't agree with it I don't think it was inflammatory no and it was a 45 minute episode and that's why we did this kind of additional discussion on it just so we could dig in a little bit yeah um so anyway Maddie what is your campfire topic oh okay so mine is um we don't have to go through it too much because I think, um, which is great because we're always in sync with how we think about things, which is why we're the best. Yeah. I um, love it. We already talked about a couple of the things that I wanted to touch upon, um, but so that's great. So we don't have to, you know, repeat ourselves. But one of the things that's been interesting for me with doing this project is learning about uh, different segments of millennials. We t- I talked a little bit with Vivica, who was, um, she's from Hong Kong, and she was in Miss Saigon. When I talked to her, you know, talking about the millennial experience abroad, um, talking about it with different, you know, minority groups, talking about it with Alana, with her sexuality, with um, Stephen, with his alcoholism, like different aspects that you don't necessarily think about. I think, you know, the economic stuff is very important, but Um, looking at these different groups that might not get you know the New York Times big headline or they might get lumped in with the whole millennial discussion so I've been pulling articles and stuff so this is the first one that might be a series of hot topics of mine we'll see Um, different groups different international and different minority groups um, talking about their specific millennial experience so there's this site called Blavity I don't know if you've heard of it I hadn't before I started doing this research um it kind of bills itself as the black millennial answer to BuzzFeed. Oh, cool. So um, the audience is black millennials, and it kind of is like a BuzzFeedy style of writing and listicle type things. Um, but there were two articles that were written um, on Blavity. One is called Why Black Millennials Will Be Better Parents Than Generations Before. Love it. And then the other one says, survey says black millennials are struggling financially but are hopeful about the future. So the first article um, kind of talks about, 
you know, growing up as a black millennial in America under the Obama years, how impactful that was for people to see a figure, whether or not you disagree with his politics, which a lot of black Americans do disagree with his politics, which people don't, you know, oftentimes explore that. But just um, seeing someone who, by all accounts, is a very decent, respectful, um, kind-hearted smart, educated person in the public eye, how that affects the way that black millennials, who most of which are entering their 30s if they're not already there, which is prime time to have kids, um, how this is impacting, it's making it easier for the black community to educate their young people and have more role models, more mentors, and just being engaged with society. You know, a lot of millennials you know, voted for the first time in the first Obama election and how that civic engagement will help younger black people vote no matter what their politics are, I think is super important. So that's a very interesting article to read. And then the one about, um, you know, I think we talked a little bit about this, the financial situations amongst millennials that, you know, if white privileged upper middle class white people are struggling, then obviously if you go down the list of privileged groups, it gets worse and worse in terms of financial situation. And obviously black millennials are worse off on the average than white millennials. But the interesting part is um, white millennials are more pessimistic about their situation than black millennials. Black millennials, yeah, by all accounts are doing worse. And that a lot of it has to do with education that, you know, a lot of black millennials don't have a college education and those high paying jobs that were there are not no longer there. But white millennials, if you kind of compare their financial situation, they're appropriately pessimistic or optimistic. Black millennials compared to the financial situation are overly optimistic about it. And I think the two articles kind of go together that, you know, black people in terms of culture, we're kind of having a moment where people are becoming more uh, aware of how black people contribute to society and how, you know, we should be mindful of these things and yet they're not seeing the financial reward of it but there's this hopefulness there so I just thought that was very interesting and it's something to highlight that not every millennial is a hipster vinyl party going uh New Yorker who drinks five dollar lattes a lot of them are of different racial and ethnic and national backgrounds so what are your thoughts Jay oh well I love that I am on this blavity site right now and it is phenomenal and I'm definitely going to be reading it regularly. Um, I think, I think what stuck out struck me about what you just said, um, you know, I think white millennials feel pessimistic much in probably for the same reasons why old white men feel like they're being attacked right now, because it's the first time that we've had to kind of deal with this. But millennials of color are going to feel a little more hopeful because they're able to, I think, given their historic oppression, see kind of the overarching positive things that are happening. um, If that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. So, so anyways, um, but I, great note. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we can end it there. This was a very great discussion. Thank you, Shay, for all of your notes and research. You're welcome. I worked really hard this week, guys. Yes. Um, Um, And also, I'll encourage people, I put this on the social media, um, but since this week, this is the first week we've kind of done, like, our long sort of discussion on a previous episode. Um, We've done it a little bit with 
past episodes, but I think this is the first time where we've kind of had an ongoing discussion and given each other homework of stuff to read and stuff we want to talk about. So email us, hello at Camp Adulthood. I know we've been uh, putting the shout outs in the credits, um, but I know not everyone listens to those. Once they hear the music, they turn it off. So just giving the shout out in the body of the stuff. Uh, hello at campadulthood.com is the email. You can write us anything, send us anything. If you don't want us to use your name on air, we won't. Um, you can also DM us or just, you know, tweet at us, whatever, Instagram at camp underscore adulthood. And the Patreon is still alive. I have to figure out the t-shirt situation. I think they're uh, stuck at the that post office. I got to. Oh, that's fun. But uh, once I figure that out, probably next weekend, um, we'll start sending out the packages, but it's not too late to be part of that first wave of packages. So. Yeah. Awesome. And I just want to give a shout out to Maddie. I know we've said this before, but I want everyone to know that she wrote and recorded our theme song and it's awesome and it's very catchy and everyone should tell Maddie what a musical genius she is because I have and I will continue to do so. Oh, well, thank you. I tried. <laughs> um, awesome. All, All right, kids uh, and campers, we will talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. Camp Adulthood is hosted by Maddie Yergi, Resident Youth, and Shay Keats, Camp Adulthood. We are produced by Jenny Mayfield, and this episode was recorded in Maddie's living room. You can find us on social media at camp underscore adulthood. You can email us hello at campadulthood.com, and you can visit us at campadulthood.com. Please also find on our website, there are links to our Patreon page, where you can be a subscriber, and there are many cool prizes. Thanks, campers.